Here's what happened. When that magazine asked me to write a funny article for them once a month, you know what it did to me? It made me walk through life looking for something funny. From the Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a show that features open and honest conversations with veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein, Media Coordinator for TVMA. Dr. Bo Brock owns Brock Veterinary Clinic in La Mesa, Texas, and serves more than 12,000 horses alongside nine other veterinarians. He's not just a veterinarian, though. He's also a writer and an amazing storyteller. He wrote a column called The Funny Bone in the Texas Veterinarian, TVMA's magazine. Here's how his veterinary writing career got started. I graduated vet school in 90, and then I went to Clarendon, Texas. And then I moved to La Mesa in 1992, the first in January. And, of course, these little small towns, you got a newspaper comes out twice a week called The Press Reporter. And the, the news reporter came over and he said, well, we're glad we got a veterinarian here in La Mesa. So could you write an article once a month for the paper? And I was like, sure. So I wrote about rabies and dogs and nobody read it. And, and then I wrote about like um, Coggins test for your horse and nobody read it. So about the third time I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to write something that's kind of funny. So I wrote a story and put it in the paper and, and there was a lady that read it. I, th- I think the, uh, the normal circulation of the Lamisha Plus reporters about 25 people. So one of the people that read it sent it to her son that was a veterinarian in Missouri or Mississippi, some M state. And he read it and he thought it was funny. So he sent it to that big magazine, you know, that DVM magazine, the great big one. He sent it to them. And then one day I was just living, the phone rang and it was this feller from from minnesota i think is where it was then i don't know if it's still there and he, he told me who he was and he asked if he could print that article and i said what article and he said you know the one that you wrote in the paper and i said you're in minnesota <laughs> i write no articles he said no the one there in la mesa or la mesa or however you say it texas and so i said yeah well, yeah you can put it in there and he said well can you write us another one every month and i said sure he said i'll pay you a hundred dollars so I got, I got $100 a month, and I wrote an article once a month in that magazine. Well, that thing's pretty heavily circulated. And so, you know, I just kind of I got to where I had 400 I started doing that about uh, well, a long time ago. And so I got about 400 of those articles. And so I just picked some of them, put them together, made a book. It was a blessing. It's been real good. And what's that book called? It's called Crowded in the Middle of Nowhere. That's right. And then it's Tales of Humor and Healing from Rural America. Well, yeah, that's something the editor put on there, I think. (laughs) So I have to know, what was that first article about? Yeah, that was, uh, well, I guess the the first article I wrote was also my very first case as a veterinarian. Okay. And so it was, it's about, it's about when I first, of the, I mean, I graduated from vet school on a Thursday and I started working on Monday and that's not much time to move from college station to Clarendon had a wreck in the U-Haul course, you know, tore the side of it off, didn't have any money and had to pay for that. And 
So we get there, and the very first day I get there is a Monday morning. I get there about 7 o'clock in the morning. The other two veterinarians are gone, so it's just me. So on day, on day one, I was already a solo practitioner, basically. And so the phone rang about 9 o'clock, and it was a guy named Otis. You know, he told me how to get there. There was no internet, no, you know, you had no idea where you were. You had a map, and then you had to write the directions down. And so I'd written the directions down and followed the map out to this guy's place. And you got to remember, this is the first day that I, I mean, first case. This, I mean, like, this is the first thing I ever did as a veterinarian. Get out there. And I get there, and he, Otis is a fat guy. And, you know, I'm kind of a fat guy now, but I wasn't a fat guy then. But he, he was a fat guy. And there's kind of two kinds of fat guys. And I think you know what I'm talking about. We're in vet school. They taught us to type and grade everything. So we, we typed fat, fat guys. So like a type A fat guy is a fat guy that pulls his pants up over his belly, you know, like all the way up to right below his nipples. And, you know, he's got like a 25 inch zipper. And if you're painted a football game and you hear that, you know, somebody next to you is probably a type A fat guy. And then the type, the type B fat guy is the kind like me that wears them below the belly. So, you know, you got like three teeth in your zipper. So, you don't. And so Otis was a type B fat guy. And that's kind of important to remember because in my first case, I pull up and it's kind of in the foothills of Paladura Canyon. And so there's some pretty steep and, and, and tall cliffs around there going down into those canyons. And so I pull onto this ranch. I drive to like the seventh cattle guard. And there's Otis, the fat guy, standing over there by his pickup. And he comes up to me, and he's he's one of those guys that he, he puts a cigar in his mouth. He doesn't smoke it. He doesn't light it. He just stays right there, you know, in the corner of his mouth, and then it's gone. So I don't know what happens to him, but they just eat him. I don't know if they just vaporize, but he was one of those guys. I mean, he's got this big, long cigar, not lit, and he walks up to me, and he says, well, who are you? I said, well, I'm Dr. Brock. He said, well, I called the veterinary clinic. I said, that's me. I'm the new doctor in town. He said, okay. And he pointed over to, on the other side. We were standing kind of in a dry creek bed, kind of a sandy creek bed. And then there was a, about 25 feet over, there was a straight up cliff for about 10 feet. And then there was a flat spot. And then behind the flat spot was another straight up cliff that was probably 40 feet. I mean, it was deep right there. And this cow had climbed up on that first flat spot about 10 or 12 feet off that and, and laid down, couldn't get up, and something's wrong with her. And so, you know, Otis, he says, look at there. And I look over at big old shorthorn cow laying there on her side, kind of slobbering. And so we had to crawl up around and go back up at a gentle slope because he's kind of a fat guy. And we get up there, and I'm looking at this cow. And you got to remember now, I've been out of school for one minute. I don't know nothing. I mean, I am, I am practiced. Practice has not occurred yet. And so I'm looking at that cow, and I got no idea what's wrong with her. You know, she's just laying there. She's got her eyes crossed, slobber running out of her mouth, can't get up. And Otis, you know, he's looking at me and thinking I should be able to fix it. So I went back down the side of the cliff and over to the pickup. And, I, you know, I did what every young veterinarian does. I, I got a stethoscope because it makes you look like a doctor. And I got a thermometer because my mother always did that to me. And uh, I got some blood tubes and, you know, stuff so I could – make it look like I knew what I was doing so I crawled back up the hill I listened to the heartbeat took a temperature I said dude I can't figure out what's wrong with this cow yet I think I'm gonna have to take some blood and he said all right so I stuck the needle in the vein to get some blood out and it came back and it was chocolate brown and I remember that because five days ago I was in vet school 
and and they the one of the last things they talked about was how nitrate toxicity caused blood to turn brown and so man i was happy because i knew what that was and i was like i am a good doctor so i i, I look i told otis i said look there that blood's kind of brown he said yeah it is and he said what caused that i said nitrate poisoning somewhere around here you got some plants that are accumulating nitrate he said well, what do you do? I said, man, put this blue stuff in their vein. I got it right down here in the pickup. I'll go get it. And everything should be hunky-dory. So I go down there. I get the Merck manual out because that's all we had. That was like the internet of the 90s. And I start looking through there and find out how much I'm supposed to give. Well, it, methylene blue is clothes dye. You know, I mean, that's how sophisticated we are sometimes. We use IV clothes dye. And, and, and there, there was a gallon jug of it in that pickup. And it had, it was, it, the, the concentration was given in weight per volume. And, and the, the amount that I was supposed to give the cow was in milligrams per kilogram. Well, crap, man, I, don't, I, mean, I had no idea how to convert from weight to volume to milligrams per kilogram. So I just sucked up a couple of syringefuls of it. So I'm already fudging on my very first case. Don't know what to do. No internet. Don't, you know, and so... I get the things, I crawl back up there, I put the needle in the vein, hit the vein first time, give the cow the medicine like it said I was supposed to, and uh, pull all the needles out and stood there. And Otis looked over and he said, what happens now? I said, well, I, said, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't say that out loud, but I said, crap, I've never done this before. I don't know, I just said to give it. And, and so I said, well, you know, it'll get better. And he said, well, so how long? And I said, well, it depends on how much she ate. Well, about that time, that cow rolled up on her belly and she looked at me, and she looked back over at Otis. She looked back at me, and I could tell she was thinking, I can catch that fat guy. So I took off running. I mean, I, what else would you do? I've seen a lot of cows that are trying to kill somebody. I know what they look like. And, and I thought Otis was right behind me, so I ran down that deal, ran across that creek bed, jumped in the back of the pickup. I thought that cow was behind me. I looked up, and I was wrong. That, that cow still had him up on that cliff, and she was whipping him. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh. I'm going to save my first patient and lose my first client. Well, and it gets better because, you know, I thought, well, I got to get out here and help. You know, I got to run back up there. But about the time I did, she pushed him over the side of that cliff and he fell off into that sand. So he's, I mean, it was really soft sand and he's a fat guy. He, he did pretty athletic. I thought he did a good job and he laid there for a second. He was cussing like crazy. Cigar was still intact. And he, he looked, I looked over at him and I said, Otis, you got to get to coming because the cow's coming down the hill. So he stood up and he started running to the pickup. Now you got to visualize this with me. Here's like a 300 pound dude. He's got on a white shirt and white boxers. And I'll tell you how I know that later. And, and he's got on a pair of jeans and a pair of cowboy boots. And, and he's trying to run. He's real towed out. He's trying to run towards the pickup. And there's a cow coming down the side of a cliff. That's just insane. And so he, he gets to running towards me, and I notice that his steps are getting smaller and smaller as he runs, and it's because his pants are falling down. Oh, no. now, now, be with me. This is my, this is my very first case. The, the guy got thrown off a cliff by a cow. He landed in the, in, in the bed of a creek. He starts running across there, trying to get away from her, and his pants have fallen down so far that he can't run. And, and I can see the top of his boots. And when he gets to the pickup, there's no way he can throw his leg over the side. So he has to bend down and pull his pants up. And about the time he does, the cow gets there and starts chasing him around the truck. And I got, the, I'm trying to, I got the tailgate down. I'm trying to pull him in. Well, he weighs more than a beached whale. And, and every time I try to pull him in, he's starting to pull me out. So I'll let go. And this, this cow finally catches him again. 
at the front and she is tearing him up, man. And, uh, yeah, she, she tore him up and I, I jumped out and shook my hat and the cow just ran off. So I thought, well, you know, I'm quite a bad, a bad veterinarian. I nearly lost my first patient and client and every, <laughs> anyway, so he got up, cussed, pulled his pants up and everything was good. And that was the story I wrote. And then that's the first story in the book. So you must have been pretty nervous at some point, right? Man, I was nervous for a year. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe two. Yeah. I just can't imagine, like, you get there and he's looking at you being like, hey, what, what's wrong? And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, the, and those other... The other two vets that were kind of supposed to be my mentors, they weren't there. So you couldn't even ask them. You know, I couldn't call them. I couldn't do anything. And, and you know, they hadn't even told anybody I was coming to town. That's the way these some of these small communities are. They're like, we hire a vet. They don't even tell anybody. You, you just show up one day, and everyone's like, who are you? Well, I'm the new vet. Well, I didn't know we were getting a new vet. And uh, so nobody in the whole community even knew that they'd hired me. And that's why Otis looked at me like, no, you're not. Because the two guys I was working for, one of them was 67, and the other one was 48. Now, here comes this snotty-nosed kid that's 26 years old, you know, can't even grow a good mustache yet. And you're like, you know, I'm looking for a veterinarian. Who are you? Well, Would you say that those first two years out of veterinary school, you probably learned almost the most? Because you kind of had to just figure it out as you go. Yeah, I mean, you get help from from other people, you know, that you can call and, and, and help you through it. But I used to leave every night from the clinic having memorized my schedule for the next day so I could go home and read about how to do it so I wouldn't hurt an animal. I mean, it's nerve-wracking. You know, now I don't even know what's on the schedule for tomorrow. After 30 years, you can do, you've done everything a million times. You don't have to really worry too much about it. In fact, if you find something that you worry about a little bit, it's kind of exciting because you never get to do that anymore. But man, that first two years, I, I you know, I thought... I learned so much in veterinary school, but I couldn't remember nothing. <laughs> it's like it paralyzed me. And that's kind of like the imposter, imposter syndrome where like you're wearing a white coat and you're like, oh, I look like a doctor. but <laughs> Yeah, but I really not. They call me Dr. Brock, but uh, you might want to hold that for later. <laughs> and to go back to writing about that story, all those stories were printed in that in that publication and then you turn it into a book and then how did that end up in our magazine well so somewhere you know i was on the tvma board of directors for years and and, and like Lori teller she she was a classmate of mine and she's been the president of like everything maybe even the united states and she <laughs> she told them that i wrote stories and so they started putting it in there some and they put it in there some and then they didn't put it in there some and then and I got plenty of stories, you know, I can just send them one. Yeah. So my question is, do you think that funny things happen in your life more than a typical person? Or would you say that you just happen to notice funny things and you realize this is something that I need to write about and share? Or do you think it's like a mix of the two? No, I, I tell you, that's, that's the best question anybody's asked me. And I've done these interviews so many times and well, nobody's ever asked me that question, but that is, no, no, really, that is a great question. And here's why it's so great, because when that, here's what happened. When that magazine asked me to write a funny article for them once a month, you know what it did to me? It made me walk through life looking for something funny. Mm. And, you know, I think 
you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, to overstate or understate how much that affected my practice. You know, and I guess I've never really thought about it like I am right now after you asked me that question was because, you know, we have a great clinic. We laugh all the time and we're always looking for a reason to smile. And, 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 and I started early on in my career having to find something funny every month so I could write it down. And so when you start looking for funny things, it becomes amazing is how tolerant you become of terrible things and how you can make terrible things actually turn into funny things. Yeah. That, 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 that was a great question because I never really stopped to think how much that may have changed the personality and the prosperity of our veterinary clinic because I was always having fun with clients so I could make something funny happen. I was always having fun with, with, with my employees so that I could have something funny to write about. And, and boy, it really did. Yeah. I think maybe I ought to write a book about that thought. That's a good thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, so do you think that's part of your personality? Like even before you realized you had to look through the lens of finding humor, do you think like when you were growing up, you, also kind of had a sense of humor or this just oh, no, no. See, my dad and my mom are both hilarious people and and so I was surrounded by laughter and people that you know what I'm talking about some people just see a situation and, and it's it, I can remember one night coming home when I was farming with my granddad and we were sitting there with my grandma and he was describing an event that occurred with a cow to her while we were sitting around the dinner table. Mm -hmm. And I can just remember thinking that is not the way I saw it. I mean, he's describing something that I was there with him and he noticed details that I missed and he saw things that I didn't pay any attention to. And, and he just was, I mean, he was much more in tune to every moment that happened during that event. And I, and I, and I, you know, we got done with supper and I was a big old kid, 14 years old or 15. I thought to myself, I'm just not paying enough attention. And, and, and that guy could, he could just saw everything that was going on. And I noticed that I wasn't seeing things that way. And so I kind of made a conscious effort at that age to start being more attentive to detail. And during the process of that, I found that there's a lot of funny stuff. And so I, I'm pretty blessed with a sense of humor. And I think it's genetic from my parents. But, but hopefully I've been responsible with it and tried to use it well. You know, I think there's a lot of a gift in that when somebody, I'm, you know, somebody can dunk a basketball and they take credit for it. I'm just like, you know, God made you that way. And if you can make people laugh, don't take credit for it. Cause that's just the way God made you. Mm -hmm. Even though Dr. Brock is a funny guy, he sometimes has a tough crowd. These people would come in with, with a dog and that dog was their world because nobody liked them and they didn't like anybody. And those people are sometimes really hard to get along with. There's a reason nobody likes them because they're buttholes or something. You know, they're ugly and they do bad things and they're mean and grumpy and grappy. And, and, and a lot of those people started coming to see me after I got out of school. And I wasn't used to that. I wasn't, I wasn't used to mean people. I mean, I, they would come in and I was trying to help their dog and all they wanted to do was criticize them or, or find fault or tell me what they read on the, you know, on, in the bookstore or online or whatever. And then they just coming in one after another. And, and finally my secretary, when I bought this place, she's, she's, I, you know, I come out of a exam room working on a dog and 
and I was just like, man, I tell you, I'm just not doing very good at this. So I said, that, that guy's just mean. And she said, look, nobody in this town likes that guy. He's hateful to everybody. Don't, don't take it like the only, the only reason he has a dog is because nobody else likes him. And I've thought about that, that there's so many kind of people that when you have to deal with as a veterinarian, you don't realize that we have to look at those people's dogs that nobody in the world likes me. And you do it over and over. Yeah. But like so much of what you do is, is uh, working with the, the clients. Like you're not yep. just helping animals. You're also talking to people. That's just, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting older now. Like I'm 56 and I don't know, it's not terribly old, but I don't want to do, I've been doing it pretty hard for 30 years. And I, I, I tell the people that are going to take over and they'll follow in behind me that I'll still come in after I kind of retire, but I don't want to have any clients. I just want to take care of the animals. And that's what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to do surgery on the horses. I'm going to watch the horses trot. I'm going to do MRIs on the horses. I'm going to do all that. And then I want somebody else to go talk to the clients. Not that I don't love those people because the, some of the best friends, the people I love the most in this world were clients of mine. When I first started a relationship and knowledge of them, so I've, I've made some of the greatest friends of my life, but man, there's some people that have just wore me out. Oh man, they have, they, yeah. they worry. And in that case, it'd be nice if the animals could talk and they could be. No, no, <laughs> no. Cause if they could talk, they would gripe too. And so everybody says, don't you wish clients could, your patients could talk. And I'm like, no, no way. So, <laughs> talk. Uh, Cause they can't, then all they do is say it's too hot in here. I need, I need more leaves on my alfalfa. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> While Dr. Brock is known for his lighthearted, funny stories, he has written about some somber ones as well. There was this uh, professional barrel racer lady, and she had a, a lot of horses, but she had one very old horse that was her barrel horse when she was young, and, and, and she kept that horse, and it was buddy to her really fast horses. And his name was, was, well, anyway, it doesn't matter. And so, anyway, so that horse was always with that barrel racer she had like like i taught her when she was at texas tech i used to teach there uh, at night some and and i met her there when she was just a young girl 18 years old and that was her barrel horse and so the years pass and you know now i'm now this this girl's like 30 so you know lots of years have passed but that horse is still alive and all these world champion horses have ridden around in a trailer with this old horse. And, uh, so that horse colicked and I did colic surgery on it. It had a chip in one of its knees and I took the chip out. It had a problem with one of its teeth. I did surgery on its tooth. This is the old horse. And I really loved this old horse. And, and so this horse had been no telling how many millions of miles in a truck. And it was just the kindest horse. And, and that horse foundered and, and it was about, 28 or nine years old and it foundered and, and you know and i'd taken care of that horse for 10 years and you know and and that thing foundered and and, and it stayed at the clinic i just kept it there and oh, we did everything we could we flew people in we did all the stuff and it just wasn't getting any better and you know i wound up having to put that horse to sleep and that was that was oh yeah it was the well, i mean it was good because that horse was just in misery, but it was just terrible. And, and you know, that, that's one that, and I know that's kind of the cleft notes of it, but man, that was a horse that I really let myself get way too attached to because it stayed at the clinic while it was founded yeah. for six months or a year. And what about the client? 
Oh yeah, oh yeah. She she took it hard too. Yeah, it it was just it was just a terrible all around thing because that horse was special to everybody that worked at that clinic and her the the owners and the, the owner's mother and dad they loved that horse. You know, it was it was a, just a bad day, man. It was a bad day. One of Doctor Brock's better days was him running after a pig in a lush backyard. I mean, it was like utopia for pigs. Yeah. I had had it had all these bushes and and all these all these little rocks things around them to keep the pig from eating the bushes and and then it had overhanging vines for this pig to sleep under and a little nice mud puddle with green grass all the way around it. I mean, it was like something out of a a cartoon. It was so perfect. And we get back there and that pig's laying in that little mud hole, just sunning it up and. We're talking to the lady and I'm getting all the vaccines and everything put together. And, you know, I, I thought, well, I said, I'm going to have to get this pig a shot. And I said, I'm not sure if he's going to like it. And that lady said, oh, no, nothing bothers him. She said, I'll just scratch him on the belly here and he'll lay down and you can give him a shot. So she did that. That pig rolled over and I stuck the needle in his neck to, in the syringe to give a shot. And that thing jumped up like a cheetah. Now, I'm not kidding you. It jumped up and took off. And in and, and the needle, or I had the, actually the syringe was still hooked to the needle. I didn't even have time to push the button and, and the thing had already took off. And so I went after it trying to catch it. And, and I figured here in a minute, maybe the weight of the syringe would pull the needle out, but the needle fell off the, the syringe instead. And so the needle was still stuck in the back of this Hussein Bolt speed pig. And he jumps and runs and goes up underneath this bush. And I and so I get into behind it and I'm running around. You know, it's hard to run when you're bent over at the waist. You can't go very fast anyway. And Emily, my old daughter there, she was laughing, telling me I looked stupid while I was trying to run as a five-year-old. That makes you feel good. And the lady was making all those old woman noises. Oh, my, you know, Joe, help it. So this thing's running all over the backyard with me behind it. And it come, I can't catch it. I mean, it's, I can't, it, it's always too fast. And so. I come over, she come over and she said, I stopped. She said, what are you going to do? I said, I can't get it out of there. I said, we have to get a panel or a cow panel or something. She said, Oh, I don't want that back there. Won't it fall out? And I said, well, let me try again. So there was this big beach ball, big beach ball kind of in the middle of the yard. And every time I get close to that pig, it, it get up and run. And so I just couldn't even get close enough to do anything. And so I got behind that beach ball and belly crawled behind the beach ball all the way across that backyard. And that, and that pig would look and I'd freeze and then it kind of grunt around and I'd, I'd move some more and it'd look up and I'd stop and then it would root around some more. And so I got close enough to it and I jumped out, and pulled the needle out, man, I'm telling you that lady and my daughter were giving high fives to each other and bouncing up and down. And I just I told the lady said, look, this pig's not going to get exposed to any other pigs in this backyard for the rest of its life. So let's just not vaccinate it. And she said, Oh, good idea. And that was the end. That sounds like such chaos, but it all worked out. Yeah, well, kind of. <laughs> that was Dr. Bo Brock from Brock Veterinary Clinic. He's a pretty funny guy. His book, Crowded in the Middle of Nowhere, was on the Amazon bestseller list in humor quickly after it was published in 2014. The story spanned nearly 25 years. He continues to publish articles in DVM 360. In his latest article titled New Year's Resolution, he wrote, I hope you'll spend every day looking for a reason to smile. 
It was such a delight having him on the show. On the next episode of Veterinary Vitals, you'll learn how to fully prepare for compliance inspections by the Texas Board of Veterinary Medical Examiners. After all, you never know when an inspector will pop into your clinic. It's never a convenient time for the board to show up, but um, sometimes the board shows up early in the morning when things are really rushed around a veterinary practice. That was Dr. Don Farrell. He's both a veterinarian and a lawyer. Find out how to be ready for a compliance inspection that could happen at any moment. Well, hopefully it doesn't happen to you between now and the next episode. In the meantime, please subscribe to the podcast and write a review. That's how more veterinary professionals will find out about the show. Thank you for tuning in to Veterinary Vitals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein from TVMA. Thank you.